Welcome to the Old Chick Snowship Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Arthurton. This podcast is dedicated to helping midlife women step into the inherent power and wisdom of a time of life when they often feel overlooked and underrepresented and even begin to doubt themselves. Each week, we will cover information and inspirational topics along with real stories from real women who are defying cultural stereotypes and perceptions of midlife. Women who are reinventing themselves, starting businesses, chasing their dreams, and tackling challenges they never thought possible. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Old Chicks No Ship podcast. Today, we're going to be talking all about people-pleasing and her ugly stepsisters, comparison and perfectionism, and how they keep us stuck, how they keep us from being our most authentic selves, which is so important for us in this next chapter of our lives, it's really, you know, becoming our most authentic, like living into our truth, basically, and how people-pleasing can keep us stuck, keep us away from that. So my guest today is Amy Greensmith, who is a life coach. She's a speaker. She's a hypnotherapist. And she teaches chronic people pleasers how to stand up for themselves. So welcome, Amy. Hi, Jen. I'm so excited to hang out. So I wanted to really have this conversation today because so many of my clients and so many of the women in my community all fall into this trap called people pleasing. And I know it's people pleasing is a bit of a catch all because there's lots in that, like the reasons why we people please. I consider myself a reformed, Uh (laughs) reforming. I don't know if you're ever fully Mm -hmm. reformed people pleaser. As much work as I've done on it, I find myself falling back into the trap every once in a while. Luckily, now I can recognize when I'm doing it. (laughs) Yes. Of course, correct. But let's start off with what is people pleasing? Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up first and foremost, because I really find that people usually fall in one of two camps where they either say, oh my gosh, yes, that's me. Or they go, oh no, I'm not a people pleaser. And that's typically because we have this connotation that a people pleaser is someone who is incredibly reserved, maybe more introverted, very shy, maybe a little bit more of a retracted posture lets everybody walk all over them. And then if you happen to be extroverted or really gregarious or outspoken, you think that there's no possible way that I am a people pleaser. But really the way that I look at it is anytime you are sacrificing who you are, your wants and needs and opinions, because you are making someone else's wants, needs, and opinions more important. So it's basically a high investment in the opinions of other people. Mm -hmm. And I find that a lot of very high achieving perfectionist tendency types fall in that category. So I think it's important that we look at the semantics of it, because not always do we say, oh my gosh, yes, that's who I am and identify in that way. But I also think that it's important with all things in personal development that we leave room for nuance Mm -hmm. because people-pleasing is actually rooted in our primitive defense mechanism. And so there are times in which people-pleasing has legitimately kept us safe. And you know, for many of us, if you've gotten into your adult years and you find that you're heavily invested in the opinions of others, It's likely that as a child or maybe even in your early adulthood, you leaned on that in order to stay safe in some way. Yeah. I love the point that you just made about, you know, our typical depiction of people pleasers, this meek, mild, 
you know, soft-spoken wallflower type. Yes. Um, I definitely am not one of those people, yet I would definitely have thrown myself in the people-pleasing category because mm-hmm. I lived my life based on the needs of everybody else, like based on the needs of my family, based on the needs of my career, like my own needs never even came into the question. And I feel like so many of us as women, we're cultured that way to put everyone else's needs ahead of us. So does that mean like all women are people pleasers? Like I feel like it's bigger than just us and our own history. I feel like it's a cultural thing where we've taught women to be people pleasers. Absolutely. And it it also depends. This is again, where nuance comes into play. Because it depends on how you were raised. It depends on your culture. It depends on if you are a part of a marginalized community or identity. For example, if you are in a disabled body, let's say, there is this uh, way in which our society doesn't really favor that. And so if you have a disability, it's likely that you're like, oh, I don't want anyone to have to go out of their way to help me or, you know, and that also will dovetail into race and uh, sexual orientation and gender identity and all of those things. So it's really important to know that if you grew up with any type of marginalized identity or In an incredibly religious household, most religions focus on a subservient female role. Mm -hmm. You know, all of that stuff can really contribute to how you live into your adulthood, right? And I think far more often than not, despite some of those intersections, I think a lot of it has to do with what was modeled for us and what we experienced Mm -hmm. in our childhood. Right. Right. And a lot of times if you grew up in a family where, let's say, you had a really volatile parent or maybe they had an addiction or something like that, where you realized, okay, if I walk on eggshells or if I make sure mom's okay or if I make sure dad's okay, then I can fly under the radar. So it's this method of like taking care of yourself. But then what happens is then we start entering into relationships as adults and we adopt the same types of behaviors because it's registered in our mind as safety, even though it might start feeling uncomfortable or you might start seeing where it's holding you back. It's still already imprinted in the mind and in the brain and the neural pathways that this is a safe behavior. This is what we know. It registers as a, a known versus an unknown. Right. So when we introduce this idea of being empowered or speaking up for yourself or being able to say what's really true for you, the brain goes, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, are you sure that's safe? Wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. Let's just stick with the people pleasing. So if you're out there and you're kind of going, yeah, I really struggle with this. There's a very real biological reason why, you know, we don't just adopt those things for the fuck of it. We do that to keep us safe. And then we, but we do it subconsciously. So the great news is now that we are more evolved and we have the ability to dissect it consciously, we can go, okay, I'm going to actively create a new way of operating in the world or engaging with other people. Yeah. And I think that's so true because I think people who are caught in the people-pleasing trap, so often I find this like, they're not aware that that's what they're doing. All they are registering is, I don't feel good. 
you know, I'm burnt out, I'm constantly stressed, you know, I feel stuck, like whatever the thing is, like that's where they're focused on it. And then it's only when you like start to unpack it, like when I'm talking with my clients, for example, and I start to unpack, okay, you know, share with me what kind of what's going on. And you recognize that, wow, the list of things that they're covering off before, like they've been so largely ignored in the, on that list of things, right? And then I, you know, you pointed out to them and they're like, oh, right, right? Yeah. So I completely relate to, you know, the subconscious part of it because again, I think so many of us are just programmed culturally and then you know, our family and our life experience and all of that. Yeah. That it just, we don't even recognize that we're doing it. And I, like, I find myself even now to this day, I will fall into that trap where I feel like some kind of way and then I'll be like, oh, yeah, okay, that's right. Because you just said yes to that thing that you really don't want to do. Or, you know, I've right. been doing this because, you know, my daughter needs it and I'm not now tending to myself, <laughs> right? That's right. That's right. right. And it's only when I get to that feeling, which now I know what that feeling feels like, where I can be like, oh, okay, yes, time to like take inventory of what's going on here <laughs> because I've left myself behind. That's right. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've had students or clients when I've said, you know, I'm available all during the week, but I always keep Saturday and Sunday sacred. So I just know that if you leave me a message, I won't be responding until Monday. And they go, you can do that. And I'm like, yeah, you just fucking decide. And then (laughs) you implement it. And there's a a gal, if you're familiar with Melissa Urban, who she- Yeah. So she talks a lot about boundaries. And one of the things that she talks about is how you actually create an element of safety when you are somebody who is really boundaried because people go, oh, I can count on them. I know exactly what I'm getting. I'm not afraid that they're going to say yes and then pull out at the last minute. They're just really forthright. And there's an element of safety that's created in that. And I think that's what happens with my clients and students where they go, oh, oh, okay. That's a great example of establishing a boundary of actually putting precedence around your own health and well-being. I guess I can do that too, right? And then it sort of creates this empowering ripple effect. But I think one of the skill sets that people could try playing with as they start flexing this muscle is to think about if I'm saying yes to one thing, then I am saying no to something else. And just putting that front and center of like, okay, if I say yes to volunteering for this organization and they're asking me to donate a bunch of time and energy, if I say yes to participating in that, what does that now mean I'm saying no to? Does that mean no to time with my partner? Does that mean no to downtime and recharging? There's a way in which our society amplifies busyness and demonizes rest. So we have to really aggressively and diligently fight for our white space. So I think recognizing, okay, if I'm saying yes to this, what is just by virtue of how it works, what am I saying no to? And is that a trade, a trade-off in this particular situation that I'm willing to do? that feels warranted. Because in some situations, it might be someone's in the hospital and it's a dire situation. And you saying yes to helping them out or going to see them means saying no to some rest or some time with you know friends or something. 
in that situation, you might go, you know what? That trade-off is 100% worth it. Yes, Mm -hmm. I choose the yes versus saying no to that situation. And then in other situations, you might realize, okay, saying yes to this person or this obligation means my mental health or means my physical health or means a cost to my another relationship. So I think it's about recognizing that there's never a one size fits all, that we have to really examine each and every scenario and recognize, okay, if I say yes to this, what does that inevitably mean I'm saying no to? And does that gel with who I want to be in this world at this time in my life? Yeah. So let's dig into boundaries here for a second, because I think this is such an incredibly important conversation. So as you were talking, the thing that I was thinking was, you know, in order to set a boundary, you have to have some enough level of self-awareness, let's say, to or pre-thought to how is it that I want to feel and what is it that I want for my life, which is, I think, the part that most of us get into the trap of is like we leap over that part. Mm-hmm. Right. And we go to the immediate need of the person, thing, place, whatever it is. Right. Yes. So how do you counsel your students or your clients to get in touch with that part of them, that part that says, how do I want to feel in my life? Because I feel like you have to, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like you kind of have to have that in order to be able to say, you know, is this boundary now encroaching on this thing, on this, on how I want to feel? Absolutely. So the best place to look is typically the things that you complain about the most chronically that you don't give voice to. So if you take a quick inventory of your life and you look at like, okay, what are the things that I chronically complain about, but I haven't taken any action on, or I haven't actually talked to the party who can make a difference, that is usually the place where a boundary is being called for. So I'm not talking about just venting or, you know, airing out some stuff, just clearing out some energy. I'm talking about where every day when you come home from work, your partner gets an earful about how furious you are at your boss every single day, yet you're not having the conversation with your boss. Or every week, week after week, you're talking to your therapist about how frustrated you are with your adult child yet you are not having that difficult conversation with the adult child. So usually we can tap into frustration, irritability, overwhelm, genuine just pissed offedness to about someone or something. And if it's chronic, if it's habitual, and it's something that you have not given them the opportunity to rectify, that usually indicates that a boundary is being called for in that scenario. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, That's a great the, way to look at it. Yeah. The, the emotions tend to be one of the most in beneficial pieces of information that we have. Our uncomfortable emotions are our messengers. They're just there to say, hey, bitch, pay attention. Something's gone awry or I need you to focus or I need you to look at this situation because we don't feel good right now. Right. So what is at play here? And I oftentimes encourage people to think about it through this lens. People may or may not be exactly what we need. They may not see it our way. They may not rise to the occasion, but it is our responsibility to at least give them the opportunity to be what we need. So checking in with yourself and saying, would this person have any idea how I feel about this? Would they have any idea that I've been talking to my therapist about this nonstop? Would they have any idea how I interpret their behavior? And if it's a no, 
then that is on you. That's an opportunity to be vocal. And that's the that muscle, flexing that muscle is not going to be easy. I'll tell you that right now. Because again, our mind is going, hey, this is the easy avenue. It's just placate, acquiesce, do what people need to do, want you to do. So actually learning how to say those words or to have that conversation is going to take some finessing and it's not going to be overnight and it's probably going to involve some rehearsal and it's probably going to involve some clunky conversations. But on the other side of that, the reason why I advocate so strongly for this is because it's a direct reflection of your self-worth. So it's not some arbitrary personal development exercise that I'm just saying, yeah, it's a great idea to speak up for yourself just for the fuck of it. No, it's because every time you choose to silence your wants, needs, and opinions and make everybody else more important, you send that subconscious message to your mind that I simply don't matter as much. And that is self-worth. And then you wonder why you're not starting you know, the Airbnb that you want to start up and you wonder why you're not interested in getting back into the dating scene after your divorce because you think you're damaged. All of this stuff relates to self-worth. So when I talk about speaking up, having tough conversations and saying no, I am doing that because quite literally your self-worth depends on it. Wow. <laughs> that, that... <laughs> Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> no, no, that was incredible. Because where I was going to go next with the conversation, and I think you just opened the door to this beautifully, is the link between comparisonitis and perfectionism, mm. which usually go hand in hand. Like, and people pleasing are kind of like you know the three ugly stepsisters. I think right. mm -hmm. I know it's been that way in my experience, and I definitely see it in my work as well too. So talk to us a little bit about, and I think where you're going to how we connect all of those is around self worth. Can you talk about yeah. kind of the intersection of those? Sure. Yeah. So really sort of at the nucleus of all of them is the concept of, do I matter? Am I enough? Am I worthy? We use different semantics around it. Am I deserving? So really all of that comes down to, do I place importance on who I am, my own happiness, or is that contingent on outside forces? So for example, with people pleasing, it is my worth is viable as long as other people approve of me, right? Perfectionism is I am worthy as long as I am flawless and others can see that I am flawless. Mm -hmm. Comparison is I need to be the best or better than. Comparison is this idea that there's one winner, right? It's that whoever is on top must be the most valuable. So again, it's this analysis of our self-worth based off of all of these external forces. So the deal with comparison in particular <laughs> that I think is really worth understanding is that <laughs> our brains are wired to compare. Reason being is we are constantly analyzing our environments for threat. So if we go, okay, that person is stronger than me, you know, and I'm sure all women out there can understand this, if you see like, okay, that person is stronger than me, they could potentially harm me and hurt me, right? We're constantly looking around ourselves, comparing ourselves to understand what we're up against. Now, we're not necessarily in an, a situation now 
where we have to constantly be monitoring our personal safety if you're in a place of privilege, right? So it's really unreasonable for us to think that we're going to eradicate comparison. But what we can do is have discernment about what's happening in the moment and to recognize, okay, I was just scrolling through Instagram and I saw somebody who I went to high school with who looks like they're doing so much better than I am. And I immediately drew the conclusion based off of that comparison that I'm not enough or that I don't matter. And the reality of it is there may be some facts, like it could be that that person makes more money than me. That doesn't have any bearing on your self-worth, how valuable you are, if you matter or not. So what happens is we take a situation where we compute some information, like that person is thinner, that person is younger, that person has more money, that whatever it happens to be, we take in the data and then we jump to the conclusion of what that means about our self-worth. So what we have to do is stop ourselves at that intersection, stop yourself from jumping to that bridge that goes, that must mean I'm not enough. And just go, if they have more money, they have more money. And I am still enough operating under this idea that your enoughness, your worthiness is not up for debate. It's not something that you can lose. It's something that you already have. You don't have to strive for it. And then everything else in our life becomes the human experience, right? So if you go through a divorce, let's say, or your children don't want to have anything to do with you, that is going to carry an emotional impact. That is going to hurt like crazy. That's a human experience, feeling an emotion of pain or rejection. That is different than I'm not a worthy woman. I'm not valuable as a human. And so it's untethering those things. And what's so difficult about that is our society sets us up to think that is where our worth lies. Perfectionism. You have to have a specific body. You have to have a specific boobs. You have to have a specific hair. You have to be a specific age. All of those things are saying you have to look this way, be this perfect. And it might be in a career. It might be whatever in order for you to be valuable. So if we take out that belief and we say, I'm valuable and I am enough already, and then everything else is just simply the human experience, it's either something that carries a positive emotion or a negative or something that's a comfortable emotion or an uncomfortable emotion, then we can start working with our emotions and processing that instead of always making it mean that I'm not worthy or that I'm not enough. Yeah. And, you know, comparison to like, you know, you were just talking about like the comparison of, you know, your body, your face, your hair. And I think especially as midlife women, when we kind of get into this place where, you know, we are not considered the (laughs) cultural ideal of beauty any longer, right? If we ever did, right? Right. But there's this kind of subconscious element where we can be like, comparing ourselves without realizing it. So I think Mm. I saw somewhere that we we see something like, 3000 images, you know, over the course of a week or whatever of what it mean of the ideal beauty standard or what it means mm-hmm. to be beautiful. And even though we're not consciously taking those things in, that becomes kind of it's going into like yes. we see it from like media, TV, magazines, like mm-hmm. conversation even, you know, you look great for your age, like all of that kind of stuff, right? And yep. that's going into the subconscious mind. And so 
we are comparing ourselves without even realizing it. So when we get to the point, like, whereas I want to do this thing, but I'm too old, right? By what standard are we too old? It's this like unconscious standard that we've created based on everything that's, you know, feeding into been fed to us. Yes, absolutely. Well, so there's a couple of things to note about this that I think is really important. One is when we examine something, the comparison bells kind of go off. My favorite thing to kind of switch that narrative or to kind of course correct is to say that has nothing to do with me. So no matter what the data is that I'm absorbing, it has nothing to do with me unless I allow it. Right. So by saying, okay, if they're thinner, they're thinner. If they're younger, they're younger. If they're this, they're whatever. So to me, stating it as a fact of like, then that's just what it is. Instead of going, that must mean I'm not worthy or I'm not valuable anymore is really helpful for me. The other thing that it's really important that you brought up here is repetition and the way in which the subconscious mind starts to develop belief systems. So one of the ways that that happens is with extreme repetition. This is one of the reasons why we oftentimes will advocate for speaking kindly to yourself over and over and over and over again, because it helps to embed that into the subconscious faculty of the mind. But the problem happens where we get all this kickback from, this is why I love hypnosis, is because we get all of this kickback from the inner critic going, bullshit, you're not enough. Bullshit. That's not, no, you have to be thin. No, you have to be young. You have to, oh, you know, you're an asshole. So there's a lot of stuff that's kind of wrapped up inside of that. But one of the things that we can really control around repetition is what we consume. So in my Instagram feed, I have curated it so that I am seeing so many different representations of human experience. So I make sure that I'm seeing lots of black and brown individuals, that I'm seeing disabled folks, that I'm seeing people in fat bodies. And I say that from a liberatory lens, that I'm seeing a lots of queer folks. So I'm, I'm seeing a representation of what I want to embed into the subconscious mind. So that's a huge element that we do have control over of what am I consuming? What am I watching? What shows am I watching? What documentaries am I watching? What is that constant feed that's happening, even curating our social media channels? So those are things that we can really be aware of. And then also feeding your mind with messages you do want. So I, if I find that I've been slipping into something around around age and getting older or around having to be thin, I will specifically go to a podcast like maintenance phase, which is incredible, or listen to an audio book like More Than a Body by Lexi and Lindsay Kite. Something where I'm consciously programming my mind with something I do want to have as repetition to to anchor into that subconscious part of the mind. Yeah. That is so true. And because I know when I was on my own reinvention journey, you know, when I got to the point where I was like, okay, show me all the, you know, kick ass, you know, 50 and 60 year old women doing amazing things in the world. Right. And then I look around and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> like there's nothing. Like I really, I wasn't seeing it anywhere. Right. Which is yeah. one of the reasons why I started this podcast is because I needed to know what was possible. Like you need to see representation of yourself, you know, average everyday middle life women doing incredible things in the world. 
Right. And it was like, I could, yeah, I, okay, let me create it. Cause I know they're out there. I'm, let me, yeah, let me put it on. And together. what a radical act to just love who you are to like what, like you don't even have to be starting, you know, a brand new company or making all of this money, but just genuinely loving who you are. What a radical fucking act. I'll tell you what, in the summer of 2020, I took a social justice course and I learned a lot about systems of oppression and it just blew me wide open about how if we have sort of these standards of like young is better than old or thin is better than fat, straight is better than queer. We have all of these systems of oppression that are set up in our society. They function that way and are able to stay in power. The oppressors are able to stay in power if the oppressed party continues to believe that they are not enough, that they are not valuable. So as somebody who is older instead of young or queer instead of straight or whatever it is, or even just female instead of male, it is such a fierce act of a revolution and of liberation to say, I fucking matter. I am enough. I'm going to take up space. That is what we are here for. Just that alone. I'm getting chills. Just that alone is fighting for liberation of women, fighting for liberation of older women and every other intersection of oppression. Like, and it's for our daughters, right? Absolutely. Okay, I have goosebumps. (laughs) (laughs) I have goosebumps because one of the things that I talk about all the time and people listening have heard me talk about this all the time is the fact that every time a midlife woman steps into her power, owns who she is, owns her gifts, chases her dream, creates her kick-ass next chapter, is us you know, being the rebel, going against the cultural narrative of what it means to be a 50-year-old woman. Like The more of us that do that, the more we change the narrative. Like The narrative can't right. stand if we're not subscribing to it. Right. And systems of oppression stay in power too if those who are oppressed continue to fucking fight with one another. So if we keep as women berating other women who are aging judging or or judging or talking shit about women who are young, then we are losing our power as women. So the more we band together and say we all fucking matter, the more we can fight against those systems of oppression and create more liberation for women period. I love that you brought this up because on the topic of, you know, plastic surgery or having any work done in our culture, we've created this divide, but like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. That's right. If you age naturally, it's like, oh, well, maybe you should take better care of yourself. Right. Or, you know, maybe you should get some work done. You know, if you choose to get plastic surgery, you're judged for that too. So we're just like, we're uber focused on the wrong thing, first of all, right? Because this is not about how we look at all. This is about who we are, right? So we're focused on the looks part of it, which, you know, job one, and then we're fighting against each other as opposed to lifting each other up. So I love that you have brought this into this conversation because, you know, any judgment that we have of other people is a judgment of ourselves, Mm -hmm. which plays into this whole comparisonitis, perfectionism, right? People pleasing, all of that, right? And, you know, know, if I find myself in that place too, or I'm judging somebody, I'm like, oh, okay, where is that in me? Like, where am I judging Mm -hmm. myself for something, 
right? Yes. Especially when it comes to age or, you know, <laughs> another woman who is who has accomplished something that I want to do or whatever it is. I think it's a normal human reaction, like you said, like our brains yeah. are wired for comparison, but being able to like catch yourself in it and then yes. flip it, I think is the power in that. 100%. In fact, I found myself doing this Gosh, it would have been during the 2016 election. And I found myself really being judgmental about Melania Trump. Mm -hmm. And I stood back and I kind of went, okay, way to contribute to oppression of women. (laughs) And I went like, I don't know who she is. I'm making up a lot of stories, you know? So I think that there's, it's, unreasonable to think that we're not going to judge or that we're not going to compare. But what we can do is we can catch ourselves in course correct. And that really is what personal development is. It's the same thing with people pleasing or perfectionism. If you recognize like, oh shit, I've been so obsessed with this work project being flawless or my home looking a specific way that it has infringed on me being able to enjoy time with family or really relish my work. Now you're realizing that that is has moved into a place where it is stealing your joy as opposed to contributing to fulfillment for you. And that really is what personal development's about. It's about examining what's happening in each individual situation and going, is this working for me or do I need to kind of course correct? Because I think there's a place for people pleasing. I think there's a place for comparison. I think there's a place for perfectionism. If I have to have brain surgery, you better just fucking bet that that brain surgeon, I want them to be a perfectionist. I want them to care about things being flawless at that moment, right? And as somebody who identifies as queer, if I'm amongst a grouping of people, I'm I'm sure you've heard me say this, Jen, if I'm around a bunch of other folks who I know do not support that and are violent towards that, people pleasing might save my life, right? Right. So we have to understand that these things are nuanced. We don't necessarily want to say they're wrong or they're bad or demonize them. It's about recognizing when do these things serve me, contribute to my fulfillment, and when do they not? When do they steal my joy or infringe on my fulfillment? And it's a different answer each time. Right, I love that nuance. Because, yeah, it's not black or white and every person, every situation requires some introspection, right? Like, how is this impacting me and what is the best course of action at this particular moment? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So let's talk for a second about the speaking up part. Oh, yes. Um, Because I feel like, you know, okay, so you're recognizing, you know, something isn't working for you. And I saw you talk somewhere about being, you know, when we're having like, okay, we decide we want to speak up about something. And often what holds us back is, okay, how is that person going to react? And I've seen mm-hmm. you talk about, you know, we're responsible for our intention and not, you know, how it's received, which yes. I think for a lot of people is, what's the word I'm looking for? Terrifying. You know, terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Like how another person reacts to me, especially if I'm a people pleaser is in fact, like terrifying. Yes. Right. So can you talk a little bit about that, you know, intention versus reception? Sure. So I think what that really comes down to is it comes down to emotional intelligence and emotional maturity. 
Because inevitably, when we speak up, there are going to be situations where the other person does not agree, does not like what we have to say, and sometimes even makes us wrong or could chastise us for our perspective. In that moment, we feel an emotion that is uncomfortable. It might be, I feel rejected. I feel overwhelmed. I feel a sense of anxiety. I feel dismissed. And being able to just stay with that emotion and not take back your boundary or take back your stance is part of the process. But I think because we're not taught how to be with uncomfortable emotions, we go, holy shit, this feels this feels some kind of a way that they don't like me. Let me take it all back and say whatever I need to do to smooth it all over and have them like me again. So it's funny that the 2016 election is coming up twice, but I wrote a, I actually released a podcast in 2016 about dealing with the Trump presidency. And it was truly a place of how do we converse with individuals who may be ideologically incredibly different than us? right? And how do we do that from a place of grace and kindness? And it was right before the holidays and it had a bit of a provocative title. And, but it was, of course, that was just to kind of garner listenership. The reception that I had to that podcast was all across the board. There were some folks who were like, thank God, I had no idea how I was going to navigate the holidays. I really, really appreciate you talking to me us about communication. I had some people who were indifferent, had the great fortune and privilege to not even follow politics and did not focus on that at all, didn't even catch it. Then there were folks who were up in arms, who actually didn't listen to it, but just didn't like the title. And so we're like, you lost a listener. I can't believe you did that. Blah, blah. And I said, oh, well, I really would appreciate if you actually listened to it because I think you might be surprised on my stance, but still no. Eh, eh, eh. So I reflected and I kind of took a step back and I said, okay, I'm responsible for my intention. And what I mean by intention is who you are being, how you are showing up in this world, how you are conducting yourself, your tone of voice, your body language, all of that stuff, the things that I can control. So I took a step back and I said, would I change anything? Have I done anything unbefitting of me that I'm not proud of aside from anyone else's opinion? And I said, no, I feel like my side of the road is clean. I feel really good about what I put out there, but I cannot control the myriad of ways that it is received. So if I tried to make every single person happy, it's virtually impossible. And that's where we struggle so much is because a lot of times what other people want is very different than what our authentic self really wants. You know, I've really struggled with this with my own mom and our differences of opinion around religion. So she does think that I'm doing something wrong. And I'm going to allow that to be hers to carry. And I still continue to carry myself and to address her with respect and poise, but also being very assertive and being very clear of what does and doesn't fly with me. And I think that's part of it is I've had to deal with her reception, not being my ideal, and once we get past the the point or get past the idea that if we speak up for ourselves with grace and dignity, that it will magically make others see it our way, that's not the case. It just means you get to stand in a place of pride 
So what I oftentimes will will teach folks about is this idea of dichotomous emotion, where when you start speaking up for yourself, you will usually will feel twofold. One, an emotion like pride, like I'm so proud of myself for finally giving voice to something. And then it's usually paired with something like sadness or rejection or a little bit of a discomfort or overwhelm mm-hmm. because somebody just doesn't see it our way. But just because they don't see it your way or don't understand doesn't mean that it was wrong for you to speak up to begin with. Yeah, I love that because I always say you can hold two truths, right? Like you can be proud and be sad, right? You can be happy you spoke up and hate the outcome, right? But you can hold both of those two things together at the same exactly. time. Exactly. Yeah. It's, and it's trust just yourself a- to do that. Yeah. That's right. It's not dissimilar to being really unhappy in your job and also so grateful that you have one. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the thing too, like as as humans, and especially where it comes to emotion, we've been taught black and white, Mm -hmm. right? And there's so much and so much that you brought up in this conversation today. There's so much nuance in all of our emotions and understanding those nuances and how they're relevant to us. Yes. I think is the key, right? Which requires some work, some introspection, you know, some personal development to be able to, like you said, make sure your side of the street is clean and that you're happy with how you're showing up in the situation. Right. Right. I think, you know, I had a situation many, many years ago. I have a, a really good friend of mine who the two of us both grew up with our parents being a part of the same very, very conservative religious organization. They both, uh, both of our parents worked in that field And so she struggled with a lot of the same stuff of like, gosh, I feel very differently spiritually, but I have all of this obligation from my family and this chastisement if I were to, you know, go elsewhere. And she said, how have you made peace with this? Like, how are you okay with this? And I said, I had to become at peace with the idea that I was a disappointment to my mom and be okay with that because I wasn't a disappointment to myself. And I was going to allow that disappointment to be carried by her, not by me. And that is fucking power, my friends. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh, okay. Again, I have goosebumps. (laughs) (laughs) And like, again, I have this thing called tears of truth. People on the podcast have heard me talk about this before. But when something is just like your truth, I like, literally I tear up. Oh, Jen, I love it. That is so powerful. And that, like, I think we were just talking about, that takes so much work. Like, that's not a place that you get to overnight. Like, (laughs) no. Yeah, no. I mean, there were so many missteps along the way. There was so much. I think people go, go different directions. I went sort of a combative adversarial place where I wanted to argue and I wanted to fight. And it wasn't until many situations where I had to clean up my delivery. I had to clean up how I communicated with my mom that I was able to realize like, oh, you can actually give voice to things. You can actually speak up for yourself. You can ask adult children to move out of the house. You can ask for a divorce and you can do all of that with the utmost grace and kindness. I kind of went, oh, holy shit. But That wasn't until I had to clean up so many instances. And I think this is important for folks to hear. I would clean up my delivery and how I said it, my paraverbal skills, my inflection, tone of voice, not what I said. Mm 
Because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times, again, when we're sitting in that emotional discomfort, we want to smooth it over at all costs. And so we say, I didn't mean it. I don't really feel that way. And we take it all back. But I did not do that. I would say things like, you know, I still feel very strongly about what we conversed about. However, the way that I said that to you, you did not deserve that. And that was not okay. And for that, I am extremely sorry. So be careful about what you actually apologize for. Apologize if if you've been, you know, rude, acrimonious or bitter or whatever. But don't apologize for how you feel about something or about something that has value and merit to you. I think that's where we get in a really sticky spot. Yeah. Because again, you know, somebody who's been in the cycle of people pleasing, when somebody else reacts very badly, it's like, yeah, like you said, your first instinct is, okay, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. Right. But maybe what you didn't mean was the delivery, but what you actually meant was the thing. (laughs) And being able to separate those two things, I think is incredibly important. Also for the person receiving it. Because here's the thing I was just thinking about as you were talking, I was like, you know, if somebody came to me with something and the delivery was, you know, you're an idiot. And because of this, this and this, and I'd like you to change it. Right. I'd be like, "Uh, yeah, shut that conversation down. And it would be an immediate shutdown. But if that person came back to me again and said, you know, I feel really importantly about that. And I really apologize for the, it's almost for the way I delivered it. It's almost like a reinforcement of how important that thing is. Like it's, Yes. Like as the person receiving it right now, I've got the message as opposed to before the way you said it, I shut down because. Absolutely. I mean, we see this constantly with, with women where if you're shrill or if you're too loud or if you're bitchy, you get written off very, very quickly. Yeah. And, and also it's exasperated if you're <laughs> a person of color. Um, right. <laughs> and it, right. And so, I mean, we see this all the time in the media where where women who are being forced to justify their behavior have to have the utmost poise. We, we see it right. with the debates with with Kamala, you know, right. like yeah. where she was just chef's kiss because she has no other fucking choice, because if you actually rant and rave and all of those things, Get you passionate. are in. <laughs> yeah. You're immediately dismissed. So one of my favorite things, my husband laughs at me, he does it now too, is every time I see a man on television just getting really angry, getting heated, I'm like, God, men are so emotional. God. (laughs) (laughs) But, But it's true. And even if we take any social issues outside of that, even if you're thinking about your interpersonal relationships, like you just said, Jen, like if if your partner was to come to you and they're yelling and screaming about and or or even just being passive aggressive or snide, you don't go, wow, I can't wait to be what you need. <laughs> right. But right. here's here's where the emotional piece comes in here, too, with the emotional intelligence is that typically communicating that way takes vulnerability and that feels really fucking risky. So to say to somebody hey, listen, there's been some stuff that's been on my mind and I realized that you would have no idea because I've never told you before and that's wildly unfair to you. And if the tables were turned, I'd want you to tell me. So here's the deal. When this happens and, and take out the word you, like when you do this, take that out, say when this happens or when things get missed like this, 
here's what happens over here for me. Here's what I make up in my mind, or here's what I interpret. Not you make me feel, take that out, but here's how I interpret that. And here's my request, right? So we don't have a ton of time to get into actual semantics. That's something I talk about a lot on my podcast, but that's such an example of like being vulnerable from the beginning like that, instead of we need to talk and you're doing these things and I need you to fix them. Right. Coming at it from a vulnerable place. Yes, it is risky, but we know that humans are far more likely to mimic that emotion. It's called emotional contagion. So if you show up from a vulnerable place, you are much more likely to elicit the vulnerability from the other person and therefore be able to rectify your grievance. Right. Which again, takes an immense amount of practice. Yes. Because you're going into a conversation already feeling unsafe because of how the person (laughs) might react, right? And to then have to put yourself in, in a place of vulnerability again, which feels unsafe. Like, Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And this, and I will say this too, this is hundred percent has to do with nuance as well. If you're dealing with somebody who is abusive, that's not the tactic that I, that I suggest. Right. So there's a, I'm talking about if this is somebody who you feel at least a little bit safe with. (laughs) Right. Right. And that's a huge piece. Yeah. So let's say there's somebody listening and you know, they have fallen into the people pleasing trap. Maybe they've been there their whole entire lives and there's something now that they want to communicate. Like they've never done this before. It feels unsafe. Where does somebody start? Yeah. Well, gosh, there's so many different avenues. But first I would say, I always advocate that people gear up, that they actually prepare for the conversation, that they don't just try to jump into it and call somebody up or confront them. I mean, think about for any of us listening, nobody really loves confrontation. We love a little bit of a heads up. So if you can, first of all, ask for the time to talk, get emotional conversational consent and just say, hey, there's some stuff I'd like to run by you or there's some things I'd like to get your thoughts on. Would you have time to chat about it? And if they're like, sure, what's up? And she's oh, well, I don't really want to get into it right now. I'd really like to give it the attention it deserves. But it's related to stuff happening in our household or our sex life or how we're operating this business venture, whatever. Like, give them a fucking heads up because nobody likes that. Nobody likes to be sideswiped. But then prior to the conversation, I want you to write out, first of all, what it is that you are actually requesting. What is it that you want differently and be as crystal clear as possible? So if it's in a in an intimate partnership and you say, I want more romance, what the fuck does that mean? It needs to be really linear of, you know, because if you say that your partner might be like, oh, she wants me to initiate sex more. And you're going like, no, I just want you to leave cute notes around the house. Or I would like for you to ask me out on dates each week or whatever. So you have to be really, really clear If you're saying, I want help out around the house more, what exactly does that mean? I would love for you to always be in charge of trash or always in charge of laundry or whatever. So be really clear about what your specific ask is. And then when you first engage in the conversation, there's a couple of things that can really help it go much smoothly, much more smoothly. One is if you are feeling frazzled and you're afraid that you don't know how it's going to turn out, write it all down. And take that paper with you and then say to them, I know this might seem really silly that I have this written down, 
but it means so much to me that I get this right and don't take anything out on you that I really wanted to just frame it up. I truly hope you can understand. Right. right? Where you're you're saying like, I give a shit about this. That's why I did this. There's no shame in that at all, especially if the two of you or the group of you have a history of things flying off the handle. Right. right. Like I wanted to rein it in. Then asking, starting off the conversation, but with gratitude. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me. Owning your shit in the matter, like I gave the example earlier of saying, hey, there's some stuff I've been thinking about and you would have no idea unless I actually told you. And that's totally on me. Own your shit. Or every time I brought this up in the past, I know I end up screaming and yelling, which is not effective. And I'm really sorry about that. So start with gratitude. You own your shit. And then you say, here's what has been happening. Not you, you, you. Here's what's been happening here's how it feels for me. Here's how it lands for me. Here's how I interpret that. And then here's my request. Now, sometimes you have to do a request at the top that says, my request is just that you let me get this all out. Mm -hmm. And then I would love to hear your perspective. If they interrupt you to say like, again, if you can just let me finish or just hear me out till I'm done. And then I really do want to hear your perspective. So sometimes you have to do a request at the top just to let you get it out. Right, right. And then there's the request to rectify the issue. So that's yeah, a little bit of the anatomy of it. Right. That's really helpful because one of the things I know that I do, and tell me if you think this is a good idea or not, is if I'm feeling, especially if I'm feeling a certain kind of way, but like if I'm feeling very emotional about a topic or what it is that I'm going to talk with, I have to like write it all down, first of all, mm -hmm. to get through the emotion. Yes. Like, so dump the emotion on the page so that I can yes. then kind of step back from it a little bit so that I, because when you get into that, if you're angry, you're sad, you're, you know, mad, like whatever it yes. is, right? Like that can color, like I might say things that I don't want to say, right? Or I'm say so it in a way that I don't want to say it. And so, and plus the other part is, is the, I do this. I have the conversation in my head before I've actually had it. And in my head, the conversation always goes sideways. And then I'm preparing my defense for it. And then I realize, like, right. okay, I've now just like pre-programmed how I think this conversation is going to go. But if I can put it on paper beforehand, it, like leave the emotion there. Yes. I'm much freer to then become, come to the conversation clean. Like my energy is clean. Yes. And I can show up more as I want to show up in that conversation as opposed to, you know, being sad, mad, angry, whatever. I'm so glad that you brought that up because you want to make sure, and this is one of the reasons why I think it's best to either table a conversation or ask for the time to talk at a later date. What you do not want to do is at the point of the frustration or the pissed offness or whatever, like let's say you find out that your partner did not pay a bill they said they were going to pay or handle something financially that you thought they were going to pay, intimate partner or business partner, doesn't matter. In that moment, that is not when you want to communicate because you are right. furious and you are the victim. And there is no way that you are going to see yourself as anything other than the motherfucking victim. So you have to take time out to let that emotion cool and I love your example of writing things out. There's a bunch of different ways you can do emotional releases. But then once you have come through that and you're able to get everything down on paper about what you want to say or what you want to express, then you need to rehearse it. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like you said with uh, numerous times today that like, wow, that's really hard to do. That doesn't happen overnight. That is exactly right. The reason why it flows off my tongue now is because I have done it so many times or said it over and over and over again with clients and students. So get in front of your mirror and rehearse it and then think about if you were on the receiving end, how would you respond to you? Would you be super defensive? Would you want to fight or would you be like, wow, that's a really good point? (laughs) Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. That's really good. Put yourself in the receiver's position. I like that. Yeah. 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 So how can people find out more about your work? Like this is such incredibly important work. Like how can people find out more about what you do? And I know you have an incredible ebook with tons of great exercises in it. Yes. Yes. So tell us where we can find that. My corner of the internet is over at amygreensmith.com. And all of those are spelled in the very basic bitch way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Green is without the E. It's all very basic. amygreensmith.com. And uh, yeah, so what Jen's talking about is a free ebook. It's kind of a workbook that are are nine different challenges to help you work with speaking up for yourself and accelerating your self-worth. It's called Speak Up for Yourself Without Being a Dick. And you can also find a bunch of free hypnosis tracks. I've been doing a podcast myself for almost 10 years. Jen's been on the show. So come get your free loot. And for those of you who want to do deeper dives, I have a retreat coming up in the spring in May of 2023. So depending on when this is airing, you might want to check that out. We're going to go to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. And um, yeah, lots of speaking stuff that I do. And then like, like any self-respecting Gen Xer, I hang out on Instagram the most. <laughs> so you can find me at under the handle, Hey, Amy Green Smith. And I use that handle pretty much all across social. So come hang out, get some free stuff. Yeah. You guys listening, go check out her stuff. I mean, even if you don't consider yourself a people pleaser, and like I said, I'm a reformed, oh, yeah. reforming people pleaser. I got so much out of reading that ebook, like a couple of those little exercises. I was like, oh, this is a good one. So oh, go... Cool. Go check those out. And thank you, Amy, for having this conversation with me today. Oh, man. I just, I've had such a blast. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been so great to connect with you. So everybody go check out Amy's work. And for those of you listening, if you love what you heard today, I would be honored if you would leave us a rating or a review for the show. And even more honored if you pass this on to a friend, family member, sister, brother, whatever that you think could get something out of this. So um, yeah, please share. And until next time. Thank you for listening to the Old Chicks No Shit podcast. If you like what you heard, the best compliment you can give is to share this podcast with a friend, subscribe, rate and review our podcast on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen in.